May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, how we love the new, don't we? We love new stuff. All of us do. I mean, if it's a new house or a new car, a new shirt, a new pair of shoes. Who doesn't love a new pair of shoes? We all do. Women get the bad rap, like you're the only shoe buyers out there. Let me tell you, the men, we have lots of shoes too. Um, I have a difficult time like nudging them all into the closet. So I know this is a um, this is not a gender-specific reality. We all like new stuff, and we like new places. We like to see new things. And they're not always new, but they might be new to us. You know, um, go to see the pyramids of Egypt, which are really ancient, or the Eiffel Tower, or um, I don't know, go to the, see the Leading Tower of Pisa. These are all really old things, but they're new to us. And when we see them, it's a new experience, um, new when you see it for the first time. Paris is always one that I've wanted to go to. I actually was in the airport in Paris, and I could see the city uh, from a, you know it's several miles outside, but you could see the skyline of the city. Um, and I didn't go. I, I went to reserve that it was all by myself. I thought you got to be got to be with your wife when you're in Paris. So that one's still on the bucket list of places to go. But I always wanted to be there. You know, I want to go and see the Eiffel Tower. I mean, I want to go see Notre Dame even after the fire. I, I, I want to go into the Louvre. I want to see the Mona Lisa and smell the smell of the air in there, you know, and to, to be in that place. And it'll be a new sensation for me, but millions and millions of people have done these things already. It's, they, they've been around for a long time. Maybe you go spelunking, you know. This is a traipsing through caves. Um, when I was a, when I was a boy, a schoolboy, we went to um, um, Ohio Caverns in West Liberty, Ohio, not far from where I grew up. And they would take you down in these caves, and and you know the tour guides would tell you all about stalactites and stalagmites, and um, you would see all these you know structures or whatever into these caves, and you go way deep down inside, and, and they would turn off the lights, and you would see like utter blackness, like you'd never seen before, and, and so exciting it was, you know, we come out of that cave and and be so thrilled with this new experience of something that was millions of years old. And I thought about all these things, the way that people love new things, new experiences, um, meeting new people, tasting new foods. We even like reading a new story, a novel. A novel literally means a new story, even though it's not a new story. It's new maybe to you, and it's a new way of telling it, but you know, and this is really going to bother you. I, I, I apologize in, a, in advance for this. I'm going to ruin um, something for you. There are only seven stories. All stories can be m- moved into one of seven categories. There are only seven stories. The overcoming the Monster, Rags to Riches, Quest, Voyage and Return, Comedy, Tragedy, and Rebirth. Every story ever told, one of those stories. But still they're new. They're new when you see it for the first time. A quest for the new. But sometimes a quest for the new causes us to despise the common. It causes us to despise the expected, the ordinary, the, the expected. I, I mean, I wonder how many people live in Pisa. 
you know, and they like like grow up, you know. Where are you from? I'm from Pisa, you know. Uh, I had a little Italian there too. Did you like that? I I'm from Pisa, and then this is, you know, they walk by the tower every day and they don't even look at it because it's just there. Or how many people who live in Paris who who walk around the Eiffel Tower and just never even look at it because they've seen it every day. There are people who live in London, I'm sure, who have never been in the British Museum or Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral. And they walk by them every day and see them. I used to live in Canton. I knew people who were diehard football fans. They watched the Browns every Sunday and never once went into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Wouldn't pony up the entrance fee to go in. Why? Because it's always there. I can go anytime I want, although I never have been. Why? Because it's familiar. And you know what familiarity breeds? It breeds contempt. We get used to something and we take it for granted. The first time I ever traveled outside the U.S., I went to Maputo, Mozambique, southern part of Africa, way down south on the um, southeastern uh, coast of Africa, right down towards the point is Mozambique, just, just north of um, South Africa. And I saw poverty in Mozambique, one of the poorest countries in the world. I saw poverty like I had never seen or expected to see in my life. If you lived in a one-room block, cement block home with a tin roof on top of it, you were middle class or even wealthy. I saw people who lived in the city dump, just covered with soot and filth, and this was their day-to-day existence. And it was tragic. I mean, it, it was so unbelievable to me. And I remember, I, maybe I've mentioned this before, I remember this fellow coming to me in Mozambique and saying to me, is it true in America that you build these really big houses and you fill them with things and then you build a little house out behind your big house and you fill it with things too? And I at that time had a detached garage. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, oh my word, we do. I have so much stuff. I'd become so accustomed. I'd even complained about being poor. And then I saw real poverty. I realized how accustomed I had become to living well and how I held it in contempt. And that's what we do with things. We get used to things. We expect it. And then we just allow the familiarity to breed some level of contempt. Sad, but it's true. In the gospel story today, we have Luke moving Jesus along on his way to Jerusalem. He's, um, he's been in this uh, travel journey since chapter 9. Here we are in chapter 17. So he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, the goal. And along the way, we've had these different kind of things happen. There were these people who kind of came at him, these, um, these religious traditionalists who, who became his, um, you know, his accusers. And, and they were really upset with him, especially for hanging out with um, the undesirables people that are called um, tax collectors and sinners, and they want to know why he's doing it. And there's this back and forth. Jesus, um, he rebuts their accusations and their insinuations, and there's these long, um, long uh, discussions that Jesus has with his, his accusers. And he especially gets upset with them for being more concerned about their own religious well-being than the physical well-being of people around them. And so he, he gets on that. But now we're back to the travel narrative. It's back to moving along. Jesus is traveling. And Luke says to us that he travels to a village that's along the border between Jerusalem or between Israel and Samaria. I thought about how this is sort of like Youngstown. 
<laughs> Youngstown's on the border, you know, between between Ohio and Pennsylvania. So you go to Youngstown and you you might see a lot of like Pittsburgh Steelers stuff, which I think that we should move them across the border. But you know, it's a border town, so border towns sort of do these sort of things, don't they? They're they're um, they're sort of one and the other, and it's between Israel and Samaria. Samaria is is a hated area, and um, and the Galileans, the, the Israelites, uh, would have been the nationalists, and and Jesus is in this area. And the, the, the text says, and ten leprous men approached Jesus. In the ancient world, there was no more fearful disease than the disease of leprosy. Leprosy was a death sentence. It was a tragic... In a world like ours, where we have CT scans and x-rays and all the ways that we can... look Heart disease, cancers, all the sort of things that we fear. But in the ancient world, it was leprosy. There was no internal medicine. It was all external. You needed a fever or a sore to tell you you were sick. And, and, and leprosy was the worst. Leprosy, when it became full-blown, would disfigure the face. It would disfigure the limbs. You would lose nerve endings. There are reports of people who um, would have their fingers, even to this day, eaten by rats, and they didn't even know it. They would be asleep and wake up to find a rat gnawing on their hand. It's a tragic disease. A person could live for years, though, with this disease before they died and just be in constant misery. Jewish law at the time of Jesus prescribed that if anyone had leprosy, even the beginnings of a leprous disease, they would to be quarantined from the community, live in a, 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 a colony of, of lepers. So the disease people lived together and they were not allowed to have contact with their family or friends or, or anybody from the community. I want you to imagine yourself as an ancient person, living in ancient Israel. Men, you're probably a fisherman or a carpenter or, I don't know, you're, you, you do some sort of manual labor like that. And, and women, you're are housewives, mothers, grandmothers, and you take care of a home. And one day, you're out working, you know, going about your business, and you look down and you see a sore on your arm. You'd never seen it. It hadn't been there before. And you kind of pulled your, your shirt down to cover it up and, and it began to bother you and it didn't go away. And after a few days, it still didn't go away. And after a week, it still hadn't gone away. And maybe it's even getting a little bit bigger. And, and so you quietly find a knife and try to cut it off. You know, maybe it's just a scab or something and it still doesn't go away. And then maybe a week later, another one appears on your other arm and maybe one on your hand. And you're really getting nervous and somebody sees it and they say to you, just out of concern like friends would do, my, what, what happened to your hand? And then you cover it up and you try. Why? Because not only is this a death sentence, this is a quarantine sentence. You are going to be exiled from your family and from your community for perhaps the rest of your life. But word gets out. A priest comes knocking on the door. I hear you have sores on your arms and on your hands. I need to see them. And you show him. And within the hour, the few possessions you have are together in a bag. And you are leaving your family, not even allowed to hug them and kiss them to say goodbye. You are leaving and you're going to live in this colony with these other lepers. The diagnosis is terminal. But the exile... The ostracization of you from your family would be far worse. Now imagine you have done this. You've gone through this and years have gone by. 
years. You, your sores have gotten worse. You're, you're, you're much more noticeably leprous now. Um, you still haven't seen your family, your friends. But there's a rumor. There's a rumor that there's this prophet from Nazareth, from Galilee. He's, he's not far away. He, he's coming this direction. And the rumor is that he's done great miracles. He's, he's healed sick people. He's cast out demons. He's even raised the dead. Now, you're a smart person. You might have leprosy, but you're not dumb. And you say to yourself, hmm, probably a bit hyperbolic. He probably hasn't done all this stuff. Raise the dead, really? But you know what you would do? I'll tell you exactly what you would do. You'd do what everybody else would do. You'd take a chance. He's coming this way. I'm going to get out there beside the road. I'll be there today and tomorrow and the next day. And if I have to wait, wait a week, I'm going to be out there. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, ten of them, ten leprous people go out to wait beside the road, waiting for this prophet from Nazareth to come through. And he does. One day he comes by. Luke says, as Jesus entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Now, they're not allowed to get close to him. In fact, they're supposed to yell out when they see anyone, unclean, unclean. They're supposed to announce that they are not worthy or not, not healthy enough to get close to you so that you know to get away from them. And I'm sure that they do this, but they continue on. What do they say? Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And this is what they need, don't they? They need mercy. They need someone to give them what they don't deserve, which is help. Give, give us mercy from this devastating disease, this disease that ostracizes us from our family. And Jesus says to them, go show yourselves to the priest. Now, when you were healed, the first thing you would have to do after being healed from a disease, if it cured up by its own or, or if a physician healed you or if some miracle happened, the very first thing you had to do was go to a priest and be inspected. The priest would have to look at you up and down to make sure there are no sores on you. And if the priest said, all right, you're clean, he was sort of the, the community quality control health person as well. We do everything. Um, he, he sends them back to the community. You're allowed to go home now. You have a clean bill of health. Have mercy on us. Go show yourself to the priest. I mean, this is, this is quick, isn't it? And I wonder if they looked at him and like, I don't know, I, I think I still have this disease. And maybe they took a few steps, all right, we'll go to the priest. You know, they walk away. And, and maybe they're looking down and they're saying, I don't know, but maybe this is clearing up. <laughs> maybe, I think there are less sores on me now than there used to be. And, and yeah, you're... Albert, look at your face. You look like a teenager. And imagine the moment. Imagine the moment they discovered that they were healed. I mean, it would like the Browns winning the Super Bowl, wouldn't it? I mean, they would be shouting and screaming and running and crying and laughing all at the same time. Every good and joyous emotion just pouring out of them at the same time. And they would be running to the priest. What are you thinking? Oh, I can't wait to see my children. I can't wait to see my wife or my husband. I can't wait for a fish taco or a pizza. You know, I want, I can't wait for this. Except for one of them. 
One of them looked down and said, Oh my word, I've been healed. And he knew how he got healed. And instead of running to the priest and running home and running to the taco stand, instead of doing any of that, what does he do? He turns around and he goes back to the one who healed him. He goes back to the one who healed him. The only one. Luke says, oh, Luke is a masterful storyteller, isn't he? And this one was a Samaritan. I tried to think about what that would sound like in 21st century America. And this one was a Muslim. Oh, and this one was a drug addict. This one was a Republican <laughs> or a Democrat. This was the one you wouldn't expect to turn around and give thanks, and he did. And Jesus asked a rhetorical question. We're not ten healed? Where are the nine? Where are the nine? One of the real tragedies, I think, of living in the Western world is that we have life so good. We really do. We live well. And because of that, we take so much for granted. Time would fail me to recite the history of men and women who have given their very lives for the gospel that we take for granted. Uh, men like Martin Luther and Jan Hus and William Tyndale. William Tyndale had the audacity to believe that people should be able to read the Bible in their native tongue, English in his case. He was a learned scholar, so he translated the Bible without authority. And for this crime, he was strangled to death, and when he was dead, they burned his body. People like Thomas Cramner and Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer who refused to allow the church to be subject to the corruption of the papacy in the 16th century. People like Bishop Polycarp, this 90-year-old bishop, who in the first century was forced to make sacrifice to the Roman emperor, and he refused. And they were so old, they didn't want to kill him. They are like, please just do it. We won't even tell anybody. No, he said, I refuse. If you do not do this, you will be burned alive at the stake. He still refused. And when they put the wood together and had the post up, they pulled the ropes out. Bishop Polycarp reportedly said, don't tie me, I will not run. He stood in a, in a pile of, of, of wood and, and it was set on fire and he stood there without fleeing to save his own life. The writer of the Hebrew says, men and women of whom the world was not worthy. And yet we have the Bible in our own language and it gathers dust on the shelf. We have, um, we have churches. They're open and accessible to all. And it's not Easter or Christmas. And it's not you because you're here. And we have the sacrament. Oh, we have this new thing. The power, the very presence of Christ among us. You would think people would be lined around the corner. This transforming gift of the sacrament. Oh, to make us into different kind of human beings. Open a new brunch place. My word. Oh, we went to this restaurant in Charleston. I can't remember the name of it. It's this um, home cooking greasy spoon restaurant. Um, 
there was a line around the corner. I mean, I don't know. We had to ask, we waited maybe an hour just to get into the building to be seated. New movie starring the gorgeous blonde. Oh, tickets go quickly for that. We have all the riches of the kingdom of God right here. Right here. In this very place. In this very moment. A number of years ago, I was um, I was taken as a seminary student. My first or second year of seminary, maybe second year. And we had this class on the sacraments in church history. And so one of the things that our, our professor wanted to do was um, to take us and expose us to various traditions. And so he took us to the Roman Catholic Cathedral, and we went to the Episcopal Cathedral, and, and we went to um, a Lutheran church, and we went to a Baptist church, and we went to an Orthodox church. And I don't know if you've ever been to an Orthodox church, but um, from all the others, it, it was quite distinguishable. In the Orthodox church, this front part where we have a kneeling rail, there would be this um, like screen, like this uh, this wall kind of of icons, so you couldn't see the altar. And in the center, where we have these uh, closing gates, there would be doors. And there's another door way over by the side, like where you can walk up to get to the lectern here. And and during the divine liturgy, the mass, the, the priest would go and he would enter that door over there, and then come behind. You couldn't see him, and he would open up the doors in front of the altar, and suddenly the altar was exposed and. It's really quite a spectacular event if you've never seen it done before. It's, a, it's really a, and, and here we are on a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, and, and the priest goes through all the motions, and he tells us, and he enters the door, and he comes through, and he opens up those doors, and you see the altar for the first time, and he's taking us through it. And, and I noted that, that he was really precise and careful about everything that he did along the way. You know, he was just very, very reverent. Everybody else noticed it, too. It was hard to miss. And one of my classmates asked him, you know, said, why are you so, you know, so deliberate in all of your actions? And he said something that has stuck with me. He said, we who handle holy things have to be careful that they don't become profane. You know, I reverence the altar every day and there's nobody here to see it. In fact, if you don't reverence the altar when nobody's here to see it, you shouldn't do it our people here to see it, right? Because this is a holy place, a sacred place, and that we ought to be careful that we don't take for granted the gifts, the holy things God has put into our lives. But here's the twist. I think we ought to remember that raising little children is a sacred act. I think that we have to remember that caring for people in need, elderly people, sick people, is a holy act, a sacred thing. That playing ball with a child in the front yard or the backyard is a sacred act. That walking hand in hand with somebody you love is a blessing and a gift. And that maybe there was a time when we didn't believe in God. And now we do. And they ought to look back and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that gift of faith. It's not my faith, it's your faith. And just turn around for a minute. Because I know that I want to be that one who turns around. Not like the other nine. Don't you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.